It was a battle that put Canada on the map, literally. Many of you know that today, April 12th, marks the end of the Battle of Vimy Ridge. The year was 1917, World War I was going on, and the Germans occupied Vimy Ridge in France. It was a strategic position to be at because it was an escarpment, much like the escarpments that we have around us in southern Ontario. It meant that they had a high point to fight from and a high point to see from. Enemies had trouble sneaking up on the Germans on Vimy Ridge, and even when they did bring an attack against the Germans, they were easily repelled. Many nations had tried to take Vimy Ridge from the Germans. The French had tried, the British had tried, but they had failed. And so in early 1917, responsibility for Vimy Ridge was given over to the Canadian Corps. And without going into all the details and tactics and how the battle played out, after four days of battle from April 9th to April 12th, 1917, the Canadians took Vimy Ridge. The cost was 10,000 casualties, 3,600 dead. But that battle, it put Canada on the map, at least figuratively. See, this little dominion of a nation had not really flexed its muscles on the world stage before. But now people were turning their heads and noticing the bravery of these Canadians who fought at Vimy Ridge. But it was five years later when that battle put Canada on the map, literally. Just west of Vimy, France, is one square kilometer that is Canadian territory. The French ceded that land to Canada as a memorial of the Battle of Vimy Ridge. And actually, on that piece of ground, you can go today and see the Canadian Vimy Memorial, a place where we see the bravery of those Canadians remembered today. What an amazing thing, isn't it? The sacrifice and bravery of those thousands of Canadians got us a piece of land in a land that is not our own. But you know, the truth is that land holds a lot of sentimental value for Canadians, but it doesn't hold much practical value. As much as it's nice to have that memorial sitting on that piece of land, it's not like Canadians can really use it for anything. It's not like people are going to start putting their houses there or, or start up industry there or open a shop. It's relatively a useless piece of property to us. And the truth is that memorial didn't do that much good either. As much as we are thankful for the bravery that those Canadians showed at Vimy Ridge, it was only a couple decades later where the Germans came back with a war that caused even more bloodshed. What they sacrificed to save didn't last. But not so with Jesus Christ. It was the early 30s AD and it was also the spring. Death occupied the world. 
And it was a strategic location for death because, well, all the people in the world lived there. And there were some who had tried to beat death, in fact, had kind of been successful. There were these guys, Enoch and Elijah, who had somehow bypassed death by God's power, but they couldn't bring anybody with them. There were a handful of people who came back from the dead. A a woman's son, uh, a centurion's daughter, a man named Lazarus, but every single one of them subsequently died again. And so it was the early 30s AD where Jesus of Nazareth took up the fight against death. Now, without going into all the details of all how it happened, after a day of floggings and beatings and mockery and a fake trial and a crucifixion, it looked like Jesus Christ had lost. One casualty, one dead. The man who had been calling himself the Son of God looked anything but godlike. The one whom everyone expected to flex his muscles looked positively weak. But three days later, Jesus of Nazareth put Christianity on the map. See, it's at this point where the stories diverge because For Canadians, having a square kilometer of territory in France is a wonderful memorial of heroic sacrifice from Canadians. But in the end, it it can't stop war and bloodshed and fighting. But when Jesus put his stake in the ground and came back to life after being crucified, he defeated death forever. See, Jesus is not dead. If he was still dead, he would be a great person to remember, a person who we would honor, but ultimately he would not have solved the biggest problem that every one of us faces in our life. But Jesus is not dead. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And because he lives death is the last enemy to be defeated. This Easter, we're going to start a new sermon series called The Last Enemy. It's based on some words that the Apostle Paul penned in 1 Corinthians 15, a beautiful long chapter that Paul wrote about the resurrection and its implications for the people of the world. In it, he lays out how Christ has defeated every enemy, including death, And the fact that we will breathe our last on this earth is the last enemy, but but that enemy is like a a tiger with sawn-off claws or a a cobra with clipped-off fangs. It's not that dangerous. It can't hurt us because of what Jesus did on that first Easter Sunday. So to get around what Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians 15... We need to go back to Corinth. Corinth was a city on the Aegean Sea, a port city, in many ways similar to the greater Toronto area. It was a place of multiculturalism, commerce, 
and just about every good thing you could get on earth. Because it was a port city, ships were coming in and out from all sorts of places. Anything you wanted, you could find it in Corinth. But despite the fact that just about everything seemed right in Corinth, the people were struggling. And they were struggling with things that, well, we still struggle with today. We know that because if you were paying attention, you noticed that Paul's letter to the Corinthians finishes in chapter 15 with the resurrection. But up to that point, Paul has walked through a number of issues with that congregation. For some, the issues were in their personal relationships. For others, they were issues at work. For some, they were issues with their finances. For others, they were issues with their sexuality. For some, the issues were in their marriages. For some, in their lack of marriages. For some, the issues were tough theological questions about how God works. And for others, they were questions of health. For some, their issues were just about practical things in their church. And yet in the face of every one of those struggles, Paul says the answer is what he writes in chapter 15. That Jesus is alive and that you don't have to fear death. Now, if that doesn't make sense to you, that the resurrection would be the answer to all of those problems, then let me walk down a logical path with you. Isn't every fear that you have based on the fear of death? I mean, it's very obvious right now to take a thing like COVID-19 and say, well, obviously I fear COVID-19 because I fear death, but let's take that a step further. Let's say, for example, you're not married and you'd really like to be married. You have a sort of a burning desire to be married. And if you're not with somebody right now and it doesn't look like it's or it doesn't look like it's moving towards marriage. Uh, aren't you a little bit panicked about that? Aren't you a little bit concerned? Aren't you a little bit fearful? Well, isn't that because deep down inside, you know that there's a clock ticking on your life. And that you only have so many years to live here before you die. And you want to spend them with somebody who loves you. How about those of you who are married? What if you're in a totally happy marriage? Aren't you worried about that moment when either you or your spouse is, is going to have to put the other one in the ground? Isn't it because you fear death? Or let's say you have an unhappy marriage. Isn't the fact that you're unhappy wrapped up in the truth that you know you only have so many years to live and you want those years to be happy and it sure seems like your spouse doesn't care about that. What about your job? Isn't any anxiety or worry you have at your job really caused by the fact that you know you only have so many years to work before you have to retire and you need to make enough money to last through those years? Or, or maybe it's just that you know you only have one life to live and these are your prime years. You got to make the best of these years before they go away. Isn't any seeking for pleasure in our life simply a fear of the fact that we might miss out 
that we only have so many days, hours, and minutes left. We need to get the most out of them. See, underneath every one of our fears, every one of our struggles, is the fear of death. And so that's why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 can say that the answer to every one of those fears, the answer to every one of those struggles is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The last enemy is death. So today I want to read from 1 Corinthians 15, the first 11 verses, and then walk through how this powerful message of the resurrection can answer every problem you have. Let's read from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord Jesus, give us strength and comfort through your holy word. Amen. So hopefully at this point you've realized that the resurrection, if it's true, is intensely practical. But there are three more things that I want to teach you about the resurrection today. And those three things are that the resurrection is factual, that it's personal, and that it is powerful. So first, the resurrection is factual. Did you notice that Paul comes right out and says, this is history that I am passing on to you. He said, I pass it on to you as of first importance. And the word he uses there is literally the word to pass on a baton, like to not do anything with the object, simply take it and give it to the next person. And then Paul gives the history of the matter. He says that Christ died, Christ was buried and raised. And then he talks about witnesses. He says he appeared to Cephas, who is the apostle Peter. He appeared to the 12. He appeared to 500 men and women at one time. And then he appeared to James and then the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me. What is he saying? It's factual. <laughs> It really happened. If you don't believe me, go check with these folks. Like, they're still alive. They saw it. 
Now, those of you who were in Bible study with me last year know that I walked through uh, for almost over an hour uh, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I'm not going to walk through that again with you, uh, but I do want to just remind you of some of the things that we know happened at the resurrection and how those things point to the historicity, the, the factuality of the resurrection. We have things like uh, the fact that there are no viable theories for what happened to Jesus on that day when the tomb was found empty. All of the theories fall flat in one way or another. Uh, we have the fact that it's counterintuitive for the gospel writers to use women as the first people to see Jesus. See, in their culture, women had uh, inadmissible testimony in court. And so if you were trying to start a legend or, or start a lie, you would never use women as the first witnesses because well, no one would believe them. So the only logical conclusion is that it, it actually just happened that way. We also see that people who claim to see Jesus alive were willing to die for that claim. And not one of those who was killed for that claim backed down from that claim. Not one of them said, yeah, maybe I didn't actually see him alive. Now, every one of them was willing to die for it. And there are all sorts of resources that go through all these different facts about the resurrection. And if you're interested in them, I can give you a number of resources to go through them. But there is one fact about the resurrection that I really want to focus on today. And that is Saul of Tarsus. You know him probably as Paul, which was his uh, Roman name. He went by either name, Paul or Saul, depending on who he was hanging out with. He's the guy who wrote these words from 1 Corinthians 15. And he is a very interesting character. Uh, right in the text in 1 Corinthians 15, he tells us that he persecuted the church of God. But that's probably glazing over a whole bunch of history. A book of Acts tells us that Saul was actually present when the Christian martyr Stephen was being stoned and he was giving his approval to that stoning. He was hell-bent on ending Christianity in the first century Roman world. He saw it as a threat to his religion and his culture, and he was willing to do just about anything to stop it. Until one day, he converted to Christianity. Now, Paul claims this, and other places in the scriptures attest to this, that what caused him to convert to Christianity was an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. Like Jesus literally showed up to him as he was traveling down a road and said, Saul, why do you persecute me? And you don't have to believe that that's true, but, but you then have to account for the fact that a man who was absolutely hell-bent on ending Christianity suddenly became its biggest fan and proclaimer, literally overnight. I mean, if you ever had a, a friend who just totally cannot get behind a certain viewpoint on something, you know how hard it is to convert somebody's thoughts. Maybe it's a, a political opinion or opinion about how you treat your body or how you spend your time or money. You ever try to convert somebody to your way of thinking when they're so convinced they're right? It's nearly impossible. And yet it happened with Saul of Tarsus. Now, let's just take this to its logical conclusion. That means that Jesus is alive. There's no other logical explanation for how Saul, 
Paul became this preacher and writer and missionary for the Christian faith, other than the fact that he saw Jesus alive. But let me, let you, let me let you in on a secret. That sort of evidence, it's not enough. You know, Jesus said something about this in Luke chapter 16, when he was talking about heaven and hell and resurrection and faith. He told a parable, and in the parable, one of the characters says this, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And in that little phrase, Jesus teaches us that just knowing the facts of the resurrection, knowing the evidence, being able to historically track whether it happened or not, isn't going to convince people that Jesus is actually alive. You might think to yourself, how is that? How is it that someone can just throw away evidence, ignore history? Well, the truth is it's Satan. In our culture, we don't like to believe that there is an actual personal evil being named Satan who fights against Christianity, but the Bible is very clear. There is a Satan. And he wants nothing more than everyone to not believe the gospel, to not believe the resurrection. And so simply giving people evidence won't be enough. But Paul knows that. And so he shows us that the resurrection is not just factual, it's also personal. Did you notice as he listed off the names of different people that you should verify his story with, he listed Peter and James. Now, Peter is an obvious choice to name by name because he was the first of the disciples to see the empty tomb. But James is an interesting person to choose. See, James was arguably as close to Jesus as you could possibly be, but he didn't believe in him. James was Jesus' half-brother, the biological son of Mary and Joseph after Jesus was born of Mary. And James didn't believe this whole son of God story. And I suppose to some extent you can't blame him. I mean, if any of you are a younger sibling in your household, isn't it true that you sort of think your older sibling abuses their power and position sometimes? Why wouldn't James think the same thing about Jesus? This guy walks around thinking he's the son of God. That's ridiculous. I know him. I grew up with him. But we know that James eventually did become a believer. And he did after this resurrection happened. Do you know what that teaches us? The resurrection is personal. You can have all the evidence you want. You can even be close to Jesus. But that doesn't mean that you will believe. Now, first, that's important for those of us who call ourselves Christians. Because we are in church regularly. We're reading our Bible regularly. We're quote unquote close to Jesus but what the Bible tells us in multiple places is that just knowing about Jesus, knowing facts about him, that's not enough. 
See, faith in Jesus is putting trust, putting your soul in his hands, relying on him to take care of your salvation, to believe that the resurrection actually happened. You know, as I talk to Christians, I realize that more and more, we don't really understand what Jesus was trying to do for us. We get the whole thing with the cross, and we get that the empty tomb is supposed to give us heaven, but, but we forget the end of the story. See, we forget that what the Bible teaches and what we confess every Sunday is that we believe in the resurrection of the body. We believe that after the world ends and Jesus comes back, he is going to resurrect our bodies from our graves, just as his body was resurrected from his grave. And we're going to live in a beautiful, perfect world that God has recreated for us. Eden restored, but even better. And it was only when James saw that that was possible that that was the centerpiece, that that was the end game for Jesus. That he realized this was never about a power trip for Jesus. This wasn't about controlling people's minds or controlling people's behavior. It was about giving them something they could never get for themselves. But the fact that the resurrection is personal is also an important thing for those who are skeptics. Maybe some of you who are watching this are skeptics. You might be okay with Jesus, but not be willing to go all in on him. I want to show you how how personal this is. Modern people generally have three views on what happens when you die. They either believe that at the end you die and you go into the ground and that's the end. You just cease to exist. Your consciousness stops And so there's nothing to fear. On the other hand, there are those who believe that that at the end of your life, you get sort of recycled. Whether that's reincarnation or you get part of the all soul or you become part of the circle of life. You shouldn't fear it because you're going to just continue on just in a different form. And the third is, frankly, people who just don't know or don't care. But I want to show you that that a view that separated itself from the idea of death and resurrection is simply not how human beings were created to operate. See, the personal nature of the resurrection teaches us that Jesus' resurrection is the answer that every person needs. Let's walk down each of those logical paths. First, Let's just say you die and that's the end. Doesn't that go exactly against what what you believe to be true about yourself? That, That you're an individual who matters? Who other people should care about? Who it makes an impact in the world? If that's true, that you just simply go into the ground and that's the end of it, then just think that out. That means 
that that's the truth for every person. They all go into the ground and that's the end. And eventually sometime in the future, whether it's thousands or millions or trillions of years from now, the world or the universe is going to run out of energy. Everyone is going to die and none of it is going to matter. See, if you believe that you die and you simply go into the ground, then nothing about your existence matters right now. Whether you do good or evil, it doesn't matter. We are all impossibilities existing in an infinite space that doesn't matter at all. Let's say that you believe that at the end of your life, you're somewhat recycled. Doesn't that go against everything that you believe to be true about yourself? Like, isn't the most foundational, central human desire to be loved for who we are? To be known as an individual? This is the reason you get so excited when you fall in love, because there's another person who actually cares about the ins and outs of your life and who you are and what your personality is like, and they're thinking about you and dwelling on you. And and isn't that just exhilarating? But the truth is, if... If you're just recycled in the circle of life or the all soul or reincarnation, then you lose who you are. You're not really anybody significant. You're just a collection of cells or a collection of life force. that's going to dissipate and and um, reconstitute in a different way later. Let's say that you don't care or you don't know. If that's the case for you, then I think you are exhibiting exactly what I described. The fear of death. You're afraid. You might not say you're afraid, but just think for a moment about losing the ones that you love or watching as those loved ones walk away from you. Is something broken. There's something wrong about it, isn't there? And that's what death is in the ultimate way. It's the separation of people from other people. See, death is not the answer. What Paul is saying to you very clearly is that this is personal. This is real. This resurrection can affect you. It's only when James, James saw Jesus when he realized that resurrection was possible, that he came to believe the gospel on which he took his stand. But the gospel is not just factual. and It's not just personal. It's powerful. Apostle Paul writes this in verse 10 of our text. It says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I don't think there's one of you watching the video who doesn't look back on their life with a little bit of regret. The person that you are today isn't exactly the person you intended to be at the age you're at right now. You've made some mistakes, made some bad choices, gone down some little less savory paths with some unsavory people. And the truth is you you wouldn't change it because it made you who you are today, but it's not exactly what you planned. You are what you are but you aren't exactly proud of it. I bet there are some of those, some of you out there also 
who look back on your life and, and wish you could bring back the things that were good about your life. Maybe you remember when you were younger or when you were stronger or when you were more attractive or when you would go on those vacations as a kid or go to those places that you love, do those things that you wish you could still do. The truth is the people that we are today is not satisfying. We aren't the people that we want to be. And the truth is as much as we try, we really can't get much closer. But what the resurrection says and what it allows you to say is that you are who you are and that's okay. (laughs) Because the very next phrase that Paul says is that God's grace to me was not without effect. See, it didn't change me in a substantial way right now. I am who I am. I can't really change that. But what God did to me, what God made happen in my life, what God changed in me, that was effectual. It was powerful. And you know, Saul went from being a persecutor of Christians to its greatest missionary. God's grace to him was not without effect. But this grace, this resurrection can have that same kind of power on you. Maybe some of you were forced in high school to read Edgar Allan Poe's poem, The Raven. It's a dark poem. Of course, it's Edgar Allan Poe. But in it, uh, the author is lamenting the fact that he's lost this woman. Her name is Lenore. And as he tries to make himself feel better about the fact that he has lost Lenore, a raven shows up and all the raven can say is, nevermore, nevermore. See, what the raven says to the author in, in a dark way is no matter how you try to make yourself feel better about your situation, no matter how you try to rationalize it, no matter what you do, you can't go back and fix the past. You might just have to live with, I am what I am, if not for the resurrection. But because Jesus is alive, that power comes into your life and doesn't just make it so that you come out of this life with the consolation of an eternal bliss or some happiness at the end of the rainbow, but with all evil undone all bad things coming untrue. The resurrection promises you unimaginable joy. See, on earth, memories fade, and we look back and wish we could be what we were. But what the resurrection promises you is you can be the person you always wanted to be. You can have the things you always wanted to have because God is going to provide you everything you need and more in a world that has no end, no death, no getting older because Jesus is alive. Whatever you fear, this smacks that fear in the face. Whatever you're worried about, this can bring consolation. Whatever you're anxious about, this can bring peace. Because whatever you're going through right now, it is nothing compared to what Jesus did in the resurrection. Today, you can go over to France and 
visit a little part of Canada. But who knows how long that'll last. Nations rise and nations fall, memorials get destroyed and, and wars start again. But Jesus put his stake in the ground. He called it his word that tells about his resurrection. And when you go there, you find peace and joy and life. I pray that you know this message, that you believe it, and it resurrects you someday. Amen.